I'm so happy Athena Club razor is here because honestly, there is not a better razor out there. I challenge anyone. Not for my soft skin. I need that Athena razor. It is now proudly hanging on the side of my shower stall. This is the thing I love about my Athena Club razor. I mean, it's got all these five-star reviews, but my review is obviously the one that counts. It's surrounded by water-activated serum. And guess what's in that serum, Rabia? Shea butter and hyaluronic acid. You Mm -hmm. know that is like the holy grail when it comes to skincare. As it's shaving you, it is moisturizing you. And also, we are talking about a very affordable razor kit right here. It's $9. It comes with two blade heads, a magnetic hook for the shower storage, and I got a beautiful lavender color. I don't know what color you got. I got pink. And here's the thing. With the Athena Club, you don't actually have to think about blade refills. You can just choose how often you want a replacement blade, and it's shipped to you for free. So you never have to get in that pickle where you're like, I don't have a razor, and then you're stuck using that awful old razor, which is the worst thing for your skin. But listen, you can now have soft, hydrated, smooth skin by showing your skin that you care with the Athena Club Razor Kit. Head to athenaclub.com and use code SOLVETHECASE for 25% off your first order. Again, that's athenaclub.com and use code SOLVETHECASE for 25% off. Athena Club also launched in Target stores nationwide this month. So make sure you check out the shaving aisle to buy their products in-store IRL. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Rabia and Ellen Solve the Case ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Hey, Ellen. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good. I'm good. You're looking very glowing. We're recording in the morning, and I couldn't sleep last night because we have such an exciting guest. Yes. Exciting guest, but also, first of all, this guest is the nationwide, maybe internationally known expert on the case that we are going to continue to discuss. It's like who she is in relation to this case is what's really blowing my mind. Well, yeah. So let's give everyone just a little bit of a reminder We did not time. I know you all thought we were like witches around a cauldron timing the drop of our Murdoch episode, but we were not. We did not. I calculated it down to the day, Ellen. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm sorry. And so we did not mean to cover when we did, but then there was so much more. And you all, we have the true crime aficionado of the Murdoch. I tweeted that she knows more about Alec Murdoch than Alec Murdoch does. Mandy Matney. Hi, Mandy. So excited to have you on. Hi. Yeah, I wish I didn't know more. (laughs) I think I feel like you could have tried the case. You could have tried this case. Oh, man. I mean, you're a lawyer. You know, I just, I'm just glad that it all shook out the way that it should have. Like, Mm. it's still unraveling and it's still very raw and real to me that like, wow, he really did get life behind bars times two. Well, I was right with you because you kept saying hung jury, hung jury. And every time you said it on your podcast, I was like, I think she's right. I think she's right. See, I really want to dive into that when we when we get yeah. there because I at no point at no point was I like not like convinced this would 100% be an easy conviction. I I just believed it even before that video emerged and we know what video we're talking about here. But I want to know why you thought that Mandy, but let's where, where are we starting here? Before we dive in, because we could just be shotgunning these questions to Mandy, if you have been living under a true crime rock for the past couple of years, let me just tell you who Mandy Matney is. She is an award-winning journalist, podcaster, and writer. She graduated from the University of Kansas with a degree in journalism before she worked as an editor for the Waynesville Daily Guide in the Ozarks of Missouri. And then she moved around, but she has settled in South Carolina, Hilton Head, no less, which is absolutely gorgeous, where she worked at the Island Packet in the Low Country and then moved to an independent outlet called Fitz News, which, again, I'm sure if you are following the case, you know. And I'll let you say a little bit more about this, Mandy, but she started kind of following the Murdoch case shortly after the boat crash, if I'm not mistaken. That's really what piqued your interest. And then she developed the podcast, which I'm sure all of our listeners have been listening to. 
back in June 2021. She has received millions upon millions of downloads and accolades. Her podcast has basically been the trusted source for people's information regarding this case. People, including myself, can't seem to get enough of it. And she just loves exposing the good old boys. And just like me, she loves her research. So let's get to know Mandy a little bit better. Well, thank you. I do love my research. <laughs> and yeah, I've been doing this for a while now. It just kind of happened really kind of naturally. I was an editor with uh, my co-host, Liz, now who's a co-host on the Murdoch Murders podcast. We were both editors at the Island Packet, a small town newspaper, when the boat crash happened. And we just both and other reporters kept hearing like, corruption's going to happen in this case. You guys got to watch it really close. And Had you heard just, of the Murdoch family before that? Not really. They were more like behind-the-scenes political power players in South Carolina. The media likes to portray them as like the political family, but it really wasn't like that. They were just small town. They donated a ton of money to different campaigns and things like that. Mm-hmm. I had heard of them because— Alex's dad, grandfather, and great-grandfather were all solicitors for the 14th Circuit where I live. And that is just so crazy. <laughs> it's like, and a solicitor is South Carolina's version of a DA. So essentially, we had the same family running the DA's office in five counties for nearly 100 years here. And we wonder why there was problems. And what's crazier is that this is actually not an anomaly in small-town America. I have seen this over and over, but it's always like small-town America. And it'll be like the same the same families running the, the prosecutor's office and the same families running the sheriff's office. It's like the sheriff, the son of the sheriff, the grandson of the sheriff. Like, it's crazy. Right. And Titles that get passed down, yeah. Right. And that's something that was really hard for people to understand that we're watching the case unfold during the trial is like, gosh, especially at Hampton, the town where a lot of this occurred in, it's really small. It's like 2,000 people. Mm. And a lot of the people really are related. And really, it's so interconnected and so different from if, if you have a case in New York, like the likeliness of a cop being being connected to a juror is like nothing, right? So mm-hmm. it's just all very different. And I mean, the other thing is it's really hard to tell if like, okay, is that corruption? Like do these, do all this overlap mean something or is it just everyone's related and that's how it is? So that goes along with every like joke in the South, right? Like that. Right. And I know and it's unfortunate and I love South Carolina to death. And I like where I live in Hilton Head, which is an hour and a half away from Hampton, It's mostly people like me from the North who just got sick of the cold and moved here and found a tourist town that was nice. Mm -hmm. And so, but Hampton is like people that are from there. Collison County, where the trial happened, is people who have roots there, their grandparents live there, et cetera. So it's very different even when you go between counties in South Carolina as far as Have you been to Hilton Head, Rabia? Yes. Yeah. Lots of Tommy Bahama. It should be illegal. An illegal (laughs) amount of Tommy Bahama. Yeah, there is. Before we rattle off our questions, we like to play a little game on our podcast called Three Quick Things. And Rabia asks you a question and I ask you a question. And then we ask all of our guests the same question. So you want to take it away, Rabia? Yeah. So my question for you, Mandy, is if there was one, and I feel like we might have asked this, but I always have this. I think about this all the time. If there was one true crime case in the world that you could get the answer to just magically secretly delivered to your inbox, whatever, the truth of all of it, what would it be? I have to say Stephen Smith, which we'll talk about later. It's connected to the case kind of, but I've just gotten to know Stephen's mother so well in the past four years. I just got off the phone with her like 10 minutes ago. Okay. She's my friend. Like I really, really love, she's just a lovely, fantastic woman and all she wants is justice for her son. And are you doing investigative work on Stephen's case? You yes. are, okay. And, so. Yeah, and I mean, that's, for me, I mean, like, John Bernay, John Benet Ramsey, all that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the big ones would be awesome. We solved but, it, Mandy. I don't okay. I, I, our, I, we solved I it. I really yeah. need to, and I need to say that, like, I have not paid attention to true crime at hardly at all in the past year and a half or two years now where we're at, because I'm sure y- y'all have gotten to this point where you just— 
there's just so much that you can deal with in a day. <laughs> and I used to just consume it all the time and be. Yeah. When it's like the core of your work. Right. Is, especially when you're doing any kind of investigative work. Like, like, I only have so many brain cells. Like, I can't. In true crime, what I can do is I can now, I listen to, I do listen to like Ellen's other show. And I listen to, like, I listen to the, the shows where I can listen, I can plug in for an hour and then walk away from it versus the long form investigator. Cause I'm like, I, I don't, that space is taken up in my head with my own cases. I can't do that. Yeah. It's hard. Right. Gosh. I mean, since we've started the Murdoch murders podcast and I'm sure you guys get the same thing. It's just, just an overload in my inbox of all these people oh, yeah. that need, who yep. need help and who need justice yep. for their case. And that just breaks my heart. Like there's so many unsolved cases out there. And I feel yeah. like a problem with true crime is so many just focus on like the same seven. <laughs> Right. Like people keep asking me, like, are you going to do the Idaho murders next? I'm like, there's all sorts of journalists and Mm -hmm. podcasters working on it, working on it. Yeah. Like we need to be elsewhere. And there's all these cases that have just gone cold. So yeah, it can be very overwhelming at times. I hope that answered the question. No, great answer. Thank (laughs) you. And I'm I'm excited to know that you're working or that you're investigating Stephen. Yeah. It's really like the next chapter of what we're doing. Fantastic. And my question is, what's your comfort television show when you just are like, I got to watch a rerun of? This is so, well, not necessarily. I really like 90 Day Fiance. This is so embarrassing. <laughs> oh, I love that show. Oh, my gosh. I love that show. Everybody you really love the show. Actually, it's like it's hard to get past the title of it, the name of it. It's very hard. Oh, it's so bad. It's so bad. (laughs) Robbie and Joey and I cover Love After Lockup on, and I was like, oh, I don't really want to do this. And I am emotionally invested. Oh, wow. I, I, which is your favorite season of 90 Day Fiance, Mandy? Oh, my gosh. There's so many. Like the older seasons, now we're kind of getting into like, they just keep repackaging the couples. And, yeah, yeah. And I feel like a lot of the newer people are just kind of in it um, to be on TV. Yeah. And not that there's anything wrong with that. Some of them make excellent television. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> My daughter, she's 13 and she does a really good Anfisa. Oh, Anfisa. I loved Anfisa. <laughs> yeah, she's she goes, Amarachu. <laughs> Whenever I do something, she goes, I'm Marachu. <laughs> Oh my gosh, it's so funny. Rabia, we got to get you on the 90. It's a good turn, turn your off brain off and just yeah. see somebody Look, else's night, chaotic life. This is me. I'm like, I really want to relax. I'm going to watch the second episode of the documentary, you know, of the disappearance of that Malaysian airline. Like, that's where my mind goes, unfortunately, yeah. when I want to relax. I go between that. Yeah. yeah. And 90 Day Fiance is always like the, but it's also interesting enough where I don't get like bored and anxious. The thing about that like, show is it sounds like uh, you have to commit to like a season. And that's what's a little hard for me. Like, can I, it's, I need a show that I can just pop, like my podcast, mm-hmm. pop in and out of, do right. a one episode and walk away. Cause I, you I could can't probably commit. pop in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a lot of storylines. Yeah. Or- <laughs> I am, I am confident in your ability to catch up to the story, Rabia. I can say, that with certainty. You could probably figure it all out in like five minutes, actually. (laughs) It's very stupid. (laughs) (laughs) That's going to be like their poll quote. It's very stupid. Mandy Matney. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure I'll get in trouble for that, too. (laughs) We ended our last episode. Alec hadn't taken the stand. I have a big question. I kind of thought you would be there at the trial, Mandy, was it just too much? Was it just you could get the same thing on TV? Why weren't yeah. you there in the courtroom? A couple things, and this is an, the honest truth. First and foremost, like I've been very concerned about my safety in the past two years, and my anxiety is like have been through the roof, especially during the trial. And to be in that room. It was, it would just give me like massive anxiety to even think about it. And I needed to cover it. Like I needed to do my job and not think about all the other things. And I mean, I sat, Liz and I talked it through of like, what could we get? What's the difference? What's the real difference between being in the courtroom? And honestly, a lot of the people in the courtroom just want their faces on TV. Like, there's, Don't there's talk some that, that way about Nancy Grace, Mandy. We will not have Nancy Grace slander. Like, she is. She's very important Robbie's to us. Face. 
She's very <laughs> important to the fabric of our work. Come on. If it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's a duck. Rot in hell. And hey, if you're listening, you can put that on your Christmas tree. Bass Ackery, my man. Okay. One way ticket to hell. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Put perfume on the pig. Okay, I'm just a lawyer. Why don't it's you just pull into... out your Ouija board and tell me what's going to happen? Oh, boy. The only perk is that you could see the jury. I would have been there if, like, for the Russell Lafitte trial, which was Alex's co-conspirator, I was there pretty much every day and just kind of got over the fears and everything. But Alex and the whole Murdoch family all in the same room and then all of these other chaotic, awful people and people knowing that I'm there, I I didn't want to deal with any of that. Can you talk a little bit about, like, this, I mean— have you been like directly threatened by people? Is it like yeah. Murdoch stands? Like, what are we talking? Are the family? You can't tell. You can't tell. It's clearly like a bot farm going yeah, on yeah, yeah. for trying to protect the Murdochs mm-hmm. and trying to figure out where all that's going. So it's hard to decide if these are like real people or it's crazy people. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I've been threatened. I've been harassed. All of those things, and it's terrifying. When he was actually testifying, and I was like, "Oh, he's a prosecutor's dream." I was like, "He was a." I mean, I, I was. I thought he sink, sunk himself during that moment. And or during that those couple days, um, I think the bots. That's when I started experiencing the bots were like, no, no, that's not. You saw it, yeah. I'm like, oh no, these responses are from people who like it's either a bot or people who've been paid to be like, no, he's actually doing really well and this and that. Right, and I really want to get to the bottom of it because it is really scary in cases like this that they actually do like change the change public opinion and make it look like public opinion is something that it isn't. And throughout this case, like we were talking earlier, I said prepare for a hung jury because I was going to be just hard. I was trying to um, prepare myself for a hung jury. And I also thought that there would be some sort of a tampering with the jury situation and they would be able to get to one juror. Yeah. And that's all it takes. So your your concern was that the Murdoch family would have that ability to just get to one. Right. Yeah. And with all this other weird stuff that was going on online with like clearly bought, I don't know. It just seemed like they were, there was just a lot going on. And the hung jury concern was not so much that it would be that the jury would be legitimately hung based on the evidence presented to them, but that there would be some tampering. Yeah, that makes total sense. Yes. Makes total sense. Yeah. Yes. I completely thought there was no way. I really thought, I don't remember if I said this in the episode, I said there is no way somebody on that jury does not know somebody in that family. Mm-hmm. I just, I couldn't get my mind around it. So I was right there with I mean, you. if the Vardir didn't take care of that, then it would have been the worst Vardir ever. It was very quick. I want to say it was like, it was just a couple hours, which is very quick, very quick. to do a process like there that. There must have been a pre, though, um, like, even before they got— There was a pre. Yeah, I like think they started with, like, 900 people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And— Screened out, yeah. Um, but the final round was, like, just really, really quick. But the other thing, like, the flip side of people knowing the family is— people knowing that like it's time for this to end you know mm-hmm. like yeah. <laughs> and i think Colleton county is really sick of the murdoch legacy and yeah so people and knowing not, them doesn't necessarily mean it's good for them it could be like oh right <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly like a lot of people do not like them so it kind of could go both ways but that was the thing that was just like there's just so many other factors with this jury that's just so different from any other case where you don't have all those connections and things. So, so it was just really bizarre. Okay. So now we know why you weren't in the courtroom. Yeah. And I'm assuming if it had been televised, then for your work, you would have had to be there. I would have been there. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. totally. But I mean, and you could get better angles on like, who's taking the stand. You can get better angles on the prosecutor. You can get, you can see what, how Alex is reacting. Like there's just a lot more that you can actually see. Mm From the camera angle. And the other thing, like a lot of national reporters were there because they need sources. And I already have those. Mm. Oh, <laughs> so right. I've been doing yeah. this for a yeah. long time. <laughs> yeah. I don't need to knock on doors in Collington County nice. and call County and people right. how they feel. Like, so it's just different. To your point about kind of worrying about your safety, I, I maybe, Rabia, you can probably speak to that. But you are very blunt and outspoken about the power dynamic, about the corruption of the family. And I mean, that's something that I love about your type of journalism. I know that there are people that definitely rubs the wrong way. Like, who are you, little lady, talking about these men things? But 
Do you find yourself, now that you have gotten so much notoriety, so much attention, you know, fearing for your personal safety a little bit, do you find yourself censoring yourself at all? Not censoring. I've probably gotten more empowered. Like, I feel like I've found my voice through all of this, Mm. oddly enough. I feel like when you have taken on, I have a lot of haters, and you've heard everything horrific about yourself— We've um, never had any, but yeah, I know you guys you have will. never yeah. can never relate to that. Everybody's just very nice on the internet, especially Robert. to women. Especially to women, they love us. Yes, very especially good to, to women. Well, I, right. Robert, you're going to get a hater one day. I promise. I don't see it happening, Ellen. I just don't. Yeah, they're really nice to women of color yeah. too. I'm, <laughs> it's just awful. Uh, yeah, and and then you say something, and they're like, "You're making this racist." <laughs> and I'm like, God. Going back to my point, once you hear the worst things about yourself being said from strangers and you figure out that like who you are and like what I'm doing is the right thing. And that's like really when I found my voice Mm -hmm. and when I figured out that like they're going to keep criticizing me for whatever I say. So I might as well just keep talking. Yeah. I always think that they win if you just if they can get you to stop doing your work, they win. Fuck that. Exactly. I love that. Exactly. And again, you kind of drive yourself crazy being like, are these bots? Are these real people? Like with the the vocal fry people, I was like, I've never heard of anybody say the word vocal fry before. Did you know this, Rabia, that she got a lot of online hate. We were talking about this before you got on. Working, I, I, I told Mandy this before we started recording, but people were coming for the sound of her voice and the way she spoke and she addressed it really, really early mm. on and I really respected her mm. for addressing. So I always call her Mandy. I'm not a podcaster. I'm a journalist, Matney. Uh. No, because recording opposite this vocal butter over here, you know, Rabia's voice Listen, could like... It is the low. It is the lowest hanging fruit and I... The, it's not like Mandy's alone. I have heard Susan Simpson. I worked with seven years undisclosed. I'm like, Susan Simpson is the most fucking brilliant woman I know. And you're talking about the way she, like this, it's the lowest hanging fruit with, with women. It's that, it's your appearance. I, you know, I, those are the people who just um, like block and move on. You know what I mean? I don't ever hear that with male podcasters. I don't. So no. I think it's just a very sexist reaction. Mm-hmm. It totally is. And like you said, it it is the lowest hanging fruit. And when women are on television, the first thing that they criticize is how they look. And then in podcasting, it's the sound of their voice. And you have a lovely voice, by the way, Mandy. It's lovely. Thank you. Ellen says yours. (laughs) Everyone here has lovely voices. (laughs) Thanks, Rania. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, I've been called on the phone so many times. uh, So I I have always wished I had like a feminine voice, but that's what it is. Yeah, but like, it, I think the weirdest thing for me is the amount of people who would send me private messages or tweet at me, like, love the podcast, but somebody else needs to read it or somebody else Holy needs shit. to, your voice is excruciating. Your voice is the worst thing. They, they would honestly who start with- Who has got a gun to your or, head to listen to the show is what I want to know for the first, yeah. <laughs> why and like, why do you- Yeah, torturing yourself. The best one I heard was- Ellen's voice is so annoying. I wish I could listen to Nails on a Chalkboard for some reprieve. <sighs> I've never seen that one. <laughs> also, it's live. I was like, that's actually kind of funny. Your voice is caffeine. But still yeah. hurts my feelings. I love your voice. It's caffeine. So, you know, Ellen, at some point, like I think in my early 30s, I started actually caring about the world around me and looking for more like sustainable choices that I could actually afford, you know, as a consumer of products. Mm -hmm. And I'm so excited about the sponsor because they line up exactly with our values. Yes. Blue Land can totally change your approach to sustainability because they make it really easy. I mean, think about all the cleaning products we use for our house, right? Like every single surface has a different cleaning product. All of those come in single-use plastics. What do we do with those bottles? We just chuck them. We do not, there's nothing you can do with it afterwards, right? So, but what Blue Land does is they make these little tablets. You just fill your bottles with water. You drop in the tablets. You wait for them to dissolve and you're just reusing that bottle and you have your supplies. And also it doesn't take a lot of space. I, uh, I used to need an entire hallway closet like with my cleaning supplies. Mm -hmm. No more. Rabia, do you know that an estimated five 
billion, that's billion with a B, plastic hand soap and cleaning bottles are thrown away each year. And here's the thing, though. Most of those cleaning products are 90% water, and it's heavy to ship. That's carbon emissions. And so it's basically all of those single-use plastic. It's just a lose-lose. And so Blue Land is on a mission to eliminate single-use plastic, and I love them for it. I encourage everybody to start off with their clean essentials kit. It has everything you need to get started. It's got three bottles of cleaner plus a bottle of hand soap. Comes in lovely light scents like iris agave, fresh lemon, and eucalyptus mint. I love that one. To get 15% off your first order, go to blueland.com slash solve the case. You don't want to miss this. Blueland.com slash solve the case. That's blueland.com slash solve the case. Do you know what you have to keep in your house stocked 24-7 if you have a six-year-old boy and a 14-year-old teenager? Cereal. Do you know how much cereal children eat? Holy moly. I got a whole cabinet, like, shelf full of just cereal. I know. I got to say, though... I love Magic Spoon, and so I don't mind when my daughter said the other day that she had cereal for dinner. But you know those things that, like, take you back to your youth? Mm -hmm. Magic Spoon takes me back. Oh, yeah. So much of those childhood memories we've had to walk away from because we're like, oh, that's actually going to destroy my... 40-something-year-old body. But Magic Spoon has managed to recreate and recapture all those nostalgic flavors for us. Make it wholesome with 13 to 14 grams of protein, just four to five net carbs, and 140 calories a serving. Like, come on. How do they do that? Yeah. It's high in protein and have zero grams of sugar. So that means it's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. And here's the thing. My daughter loves it. She had it for dinner the other night. I felt like a bad mom, but I was like, eh, it's fine. Especially with a six-year-old, you give those kids a couple of bowls of cereal. I mean, that's just as bowls of sugar. So with him, I don't have to worry when it comes to Magic Spoon. He's not going to be bouncing off the walls. He can have as many bowls as he likes. Go to magicspoon.com slash solve the case to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code solve the case at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product. It's backed by a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of high-protein cereal at magicspoon.com slash solve the case and use the code solve the case to save $5 off. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. Can I ask, when the boat accident happened, right, and that's what first captured, like you got your attention about this family and and what might be behind all this, at what point were you like, I need to not just dedicate, like, not only do I want to investigate like this family and everything that's happening here, but I want to turn this into a podcast. Like, what was that process about? Well, I really always wanted to do a podcast. Mm. And I know that you have problems with cereal, and I can't wait to talk about that. Okay. But cereal was what got me into true crime and podcast. Shocking to hear that, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I just had to admit it. Um, I listened to it and was like, I want to do something like this. I was a young journalist, didn't know what I wanted to do with my career, my life, but I was like, this really changes storytelling. And this like opens up the door for so many things. And I was in journalism and when I was in journalism school, it was really a time where they were like, we don't know what's going to happen with the internet. We don't know like what's going to happen to journalism. It's not good, whatever's going on. There was really no future. And listening to Serial and then other true crime podcasts after that, I just really wanted to do that. And hearing like, there was a couple things that happened with the boat crash that I was like, oh my gosh, this would make a, a good podcast. And then I started investigating the Stephen Smith case and listening to the audio tape from that investigation file. And I just had this like little dream in my head, but I never had the confidence to do it. Mm. And my boyfriend, who's my husband at the time, like bought me a microphone one day and was like, you should start your podcast. And I was like, no. I love it. (laughs) Awesome. But then the murders happened in 2021. And all of a sudden this became an international news story and everybody was getting it wrong. Mm. Like everybody was thinking that the boat crash victims had something to do with this. And that's why the two were related. I knew the boat crash kids' families, a few of them at that point. And I I knew them well enough to know that none of them had anything to do with this. Mm -hmm. And that the last thing these kids who just lost their friend in this horrific accident, lost two of their friends, they lost Paul too, needed Mm -hmm. was to like 
the uh, suspect. And Nancy Grace was one of those, like, I remember hearing her saying something along the lines of like, it must be, what about the boyfriend of Mallory Beach? What about these boat crash kids? Not Nancy Grace saying things that are unfounded. But that triggered, I think it was a podcast of hers or something. And it was a couple days after the murders and it just kind of I need to do something now. I need to. I need. This to is the time. Now. This is the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Now or never. So Nancy Grace will take that story and say, "I inspired <laughs> Mandy Matney." Yeah. Kind of did. Watch tomorrow. Had, yeah. She's she going to take yeah. that and She's run gonna with tweet it, it for sure. Okay. Her tweets are great. As soon as she started showing up, I was like, "This is the circus." Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. really glad I'm just staying. Can I ask you when when the murder took place? What was your initial? What was your okay? Nancy Grace is you know given her theory. What was your initial gut like instinct? Like? There's a there's text between Liz, my co-host, and I from that morning, and Liz is like, "It has to be the family." Somebody, I think I said, "It has to be somebody in the family," and Liz says, "Alex?" Question. Mm. <laughs> and, and that's just was our way of thinking. I mean, granted, we kept our eyes open for anything else, right. but as days, months, years passed, all signs pointed to Alex. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was very obvious. I mean, were you thrown off when he got shot? Do you think, well, maybe it wasn't him? And no. no. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because all of these. I, I always remember where I was and what was going on. I was on a boat with my family that day. We were trying to, it was just a beautiful day and we were trying to just get away from the podcast and do something nice. And my phone just started blowing up. <laughs> and mm. I, man. But the, honestly, some of the first text messages that I got were like, Alex was shot, but it's super sketchy. Like, hang mm. on. Like everybody was like, Alex is shot, but there's something really off here. Like, none of it. And then I looked, of course, online and everybody's like, somebody's targeting this family. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this tricky (laughs) asshole. You knew too much at that point about him. I did. And I've always known too much. And it's like, God, these people are the worst. Everything that we told you about in our last crash course leading up to the trial is available in episode one. So if you haven't listened, pause this one. Go and listen and come back. We will wait for you. Now, here is a little bit of a crash course of the actual trial of the state versus Alec Murdaugh. If you're here, you probably already know that following a nearly six-week-long trial, 12 jurors decided they were convinced of Alec Murdoch's responsibility for the killings of Maggie and Paul Murdaugh. On March 3rd, 2023, the Honorable Judge Clifton Newman handed down his sentence. Mr. Murdaugh, I sentence you to the State Department of Corrections on each of the murder indictments in the murder of your wife, Maggie Murdoch, I sentence you for the term of the rest of your natural life for the murder of Paul Murdoch, whom you probably love so much. I sentence you to prison for murdering him for the rest of your natural life. Those sentences will run consecutive under the statute involving possession of a weapon during a violent crime. There is no sentence where life, a life sentence is imposed on other indictments. That is the sentence of the court, and you are remanded to the State Department of Corrections. For the trial of disgraced lawyer Alec Murdoch, it was more than just true crime people that tuned into the live stream of the trial. People who followed the case from day one and novice armchair experts alike shared the deep fascination in this saga. We all watched the tense courtroom that played out less like a trial and more like a Greek tragedy. And we most likely all tuned in with the same morbid curiosity— to see the ultimate demise of a mayonnaise stereotypical subpar personal injury lawyer who wielded his financial and political entitlement for far too long. 
get his comeuppance. A father who stole millions of dollars from children and families, who lost loved ones and then manipulated them after their settlements into giving him more money. They tuned in to see the culmination of a years-long unraveling of a money scam turned murder mystery. We witnessed a web of deception so intensely woven that most of us lost track of some storylines, even some key players, and the lies. The lies on top of corruption, on top of a drug addiction, and was it a chicken or a guinea in Bubba's mouth? But also, we love you, Bubba. You are a good boy. Yes, you are. Dick Harputlian, Murdoch's defense attorney, used tactics of graphic and shocking language while disputing the reliability of the state's evidence, calling its facts, quote, theories over and over again. We're not sure what his goal was for such explicit and sensational language, but Harputlian described Paul's murder with an unnecessary amount of detail. The second shot ended up and there's going to be some question about the direction of that shot, but ended up entering his skull cavity, and the gases from that shot literally <coughs> exploded his head like a watermelon hit with a sledgehammer. Ugh, any need? He also described how the killer put one in the back of the head, and executed Maggie. But the defense went on to lament about how Murdoch was a loving father and a loving husband who would never kill the apple of his eye. The defense also told the jury over and over and over again that no murder weapons had been found, there were no witnesses to the killings, and Alec was not covered in blood despite the point-blank explosive nature of the bullet impacts, while questioning why it took law enforcement more than a year to charge Alec Murdoch with the murders. Harputlian stressed Murdoch's innocence until proven guilty over and over to the jury, adding, he didn't do it. He didn't kill, butcher his son and his wife. You need to put all of that out of your mind, any speculation that he did. We get it, Dick. We're all taking notes, pal. The prosecution, led by Chief Prosecutor Creighton Waters, presented 61 witnesses. Now, they had little physical evidence of Murdoch's guilt. The weapons used in the killings were never found. There's no blood splattered clothes or surveillance video. But they did come to Judge Clifton Newman's courtroom with telephone calls, text messages, videos, car navigation data, information from the black box of Murdoch's car, which let them see exactly how fast he drove off his property that night. Not to mention the raincoat that was covered with gunshot residue that was found at Murdoch's home and an eyewitness who put it there. All of this tracking called into question Murdoch's account of his whereabouts on the night of the killings. Prosecutors spent four weeks of the trial painting Murdoch as a diabolical liar. They argued that Mr. Murdoch committed vicious murders to divert attention from his own financial improprieties. Those crimes amounted to millions and millions of dollars worth of theft and even more lies on top of that. There were several emotional testimonies, including Alec's mother's caregiver, Shelley Smith, and Marion Proctor, Maggie Murdoch's sister. And there was Chris Wilson, who described learning that his best friend had stolen millions of dollars from clients at his law firm and $192,000 from Mr. Wilson himself. He said he had a drug addiction, um, and then he admitted he had been stealing money. You know, he, um, from his law firm and from clients. And from, I mean, he didn't specifically spell any certain person out or any certain organization out, but he said, I've been stealing from the firm and from clients. What did he say about that 192 with you? What was the phrase he used? I mean, I'll cut, I have to cuss to say it. He said, Go ahead and say it. He said, I shit you up. I'm sorry, I've shit you up. And about a week after our initial recording, another vital piece of evidence was brought before the court. The body cam video from the night of the murders was released, showing the initial law enforcement response to the murders of Maggie and Paul back on June 7, 2021. Judge Clifton Newman ordered the release of the footage after portions showing the victims' bodies were blurred. Colton County Deputy Daniel Green was the first deputy to arrive at the Moselle Road property after Alec Murdoch's 911 call. And this is what was shared in court. This is your wife and son? Hello. Okay. 
<laughs> it's bad to check the pulses. Yes, sir. <laughs> this is the firearm you brought from inside the house? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I went and got, this is a long story. My son was in a boat wreck a few months back. He's okay. been getting threats. Most of it's been benign stuff we didn't take serious. Okay. Um, you know, he, he's been getting, like, punched. Um, I know that's somebody, I know that's what it is. Okay. When did you get home? Right, um, right when you called, or did you go to the house first? Where is the house? I came to the house first. My mom has late stages Alzheimer's, and my dad is in the hospital. Okay. I left. I don't know what time. I can go back on my phone and tell you the exact times. Did you check? Okay. Did I check what? Did you check them? The, the, we got medical guys that are, that, that's, that's, that's what they're going to do, okay? Uh, what are they doing? Can they hurry? They are. Yes, sir. That, that gentleman that was out here already, he's one of the battalion chiefs, okay? How did you pull up you, from back there? I went to the house, and they weren't home, which was odd. I tried to call. Okay. And then I knew they had been down here before I left to go to my mom's. Okay. And so I, that is loaded. Okay. Um, you might want to unload it. <sighs> Is this the only firearm with you? This is the only one, or is there any more in the truck? I believe that's it. You think that's the only one? Okay. I'm 99%. Do you normally have right. any other firearms in your vehicle? I don't, but occasionally okay. there, occasionally there's a pistol in there. Okay. It was indeed a long story. A weird long story you just told, Alec. There's no playbook for how to act in the face of such a devastating scene. But the three-act play he put on, that was weird. He didn't appear to be at all concerned that the killer or killers might be around his vast property where there were dozens of loaded weapons. He mentioned his son's boat crash accident almost immediately, thereby offering it as a motive. I don't know. It just all feels really calculated. Another key witness for the prosecution was Dr. Ellen Reimer, the forensic pathologist who performed the autopsies of Maggie and Paul, who easily refuted the defense's theories. She testified in great deal about how Paul and Maggie met their untimely death. While she was very brilliant and thorough, some jurors were seen crying at the graphic horror of their murder. One of the strongest witnesses in the state's case was the testimony from South Carolina Law Enforcement Division agent Peter Rudofsky. He was able to present to the jury all the cell phone and GPS data. He presented extensive and thorough research that included 43 pages of GPS points, phone calls, text messages, and orientation data detailing the movements of Alex, Maggie, and Paul Murdoch on June 7, 2021. Rudofsky's testimony brilliantly created a minute-by-minute timeline that showed inconsistencies with Murdoch's recollection of events from that night, and his testimony placed Alex beyond a shadow of a doubt at his South Carolina home with his wife Maggie and Paul around the time they were brutally murdered. But no witness was as valuable to the prosecution as the testimony of Alec Murdoch himself. (laughs) What in the Robert Durst was happening? Most of us couldn't believe he would have the full-priced audacity to waive his right to remain silent and take the stand. It was weird. We keep using that word. But he had already stated he was nowhere near the kennels when the murder took place. In fact, he lied for 20 months about being present at the kennels to the people who were trying to figure out who murdered his wife and son. But once he was confronted with the facts of the Snapchat video, Murdoch finally admitted he lied. Mr. Murdoch, is that you? On the kennel video at 8.44 p.m. on June 7th, the night Maggie and Paul were murdered. It is. Were you, in fact, at the kennels at 8.44 p.m. on the night Maggie and Paul were murdered? I was. Did you lie to Sled Agent Owen and Deputy Laura Rutland on the night of June 7th and told them that you stayed at the house after dinner? I did lie to them. Alec explained the reason he lied over and over again was due to his two-decade opioid addiction that had made him paranoid and distrustful of the state's agents who arrived on the scene to investigate the slayings. He also confessed to using up to 60 oxycodone pills a day. 
He also admitted that Paul found out about his addiction to pain pills and confronted him May of that year about his problems. Alec explained that he told Paul he'd go to rehab as soon as Paul's trial for the murder of Mallory Beach was over. Well, we all know that he never made good on that promise. During his gregarious performance on the witness stand, Alec detailed his new timeline, which now included a visit to the kennel that he previously denied. For the sake of continuity, he also added that after eating dinner, he took a shower, which would explain his change of clothes. Murdoch testified he'd driven to and from the kennels on a golf cart, spending just a few minutes down there with Maggie and Paul. He noted that the family's yellow lab, Bubba, was still peeing on nearby trees after being let out of his kennel. Alec stated the dogs were not upset if a stranger was around, testifying that, quote, no one was there. He guessed it would have taken him two minutes to drive back to the estate's main residence, meaning he would have arrived home just as the shootings began less than 400 yards away, according to a timeline presented by investigators. Though his memory was particularly keen on some aspects, there were some moments of the evening that remained unclear. For example, he couldn't recall his last conversation with his wife, or how long it lasted, and he couldn't remember where he left his phone for an hour during the exact time that Maggie and Paul were killed. I don't know about you, but I panic if I don't see my phone for 45 seconds. And even though the phone data would show that he was moving twice as fast as he usually did after picking up his phone at 9.02 p.m., he couldn't recall what he was doing in those moments. Weird. It seemed like Alec Murdoch had single-handedly united our nation. For a few brief hours, we all put our differences aside and came together with the agreement that we all shared an immeasurable disdain for the Murdoch family nicknames. When Alec was on the stand in an attempt to endear himself to the jury and onlookers, he rattled off a host of pet names. Mags, Poppity, M. Roro, Handsome, Lumpy Lester, Flotsam, Jitsam, Rudy Huxtable, Sharon Bag of Bones, who knows what he was saying. But nothing was as infuriating as him being completely incapable of calling his son anything other than Papa, 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 Papa. Papa, Papa. It's today the first time I've called my son Paul Papa. No, sir, that is not correct. I swear, if he said that name one more time. And as most of us who followed the trial know, in the hours of recorded interviews and conversations with investigators, he never once called Paul, Papa, or Maggie, Mags, enough. But one of my favorite tells of the monster that is Alec Murdoch was his not-so-Oscar-worthy performance of a grieving husband and father, The Night of the Murders with his call to 911. Well, I didn't know this, and apparently neither did the star witness, but when you call 911, the call is being recorded as the phone is ringing. And while you're waiting for the operator to answer, that's being recorded too. Yeah, more on that later. As a closing act, before closing arguments, the jurors traveled to the scene of the crime. They visited Moselle, Murdoch's 1,772-acre hunting estate, to get a sense of the space where the killings took place after the defense successfully argued that it would be useful for them. Afterwards, when all sides rested and when all was said and done, jurors weighed in on the six-week trial that culminated in a deliberation that took less than an hour. Ultimately, South Carolina Attorney General Alan Wilson echoed all of justice seekers everywhere. Indeed, a testimony we won't soon forget. When we recorded our episode, they were only about a week into the trial. Since then, so much more unfolded and so much more we haven't talked about, which we will cover on our Patreon deep dive. But for now, let's talk about this three-ring circus. Rabia, there's bad stuff hiding everywhere. You won't believe this, but children's vitamins. Really? There's like two teaspoons of sugar in all kinds of unhealthy chemicals it's disguising itself as like little gummies. So thank goodness Haya is a sponsor to save us. Tell them about it, Rabia. It's why Haya was created. It's the pediatrician-approved, super-powered, chewable vitamin for children. Now, you're not going to believe that a lot of kids' vitamins are filled with five grams of sugar 
and can contribute to a variety of health issues. But mm-hmm. Haya is made with zero sugar, zero gummy junk, but it tastes great. It's perfect for picky eaters. Haya is pressed with a blend of 12 organic fruits and veggies, and then it's supercharged with 15 essential vitamins, minerals, including vitamin D, B12, C, zinc, folate, and many others that support immunity, energy, brain function, mood, all the good stuff and none of the bad stuff. It is non-GMO, vegan, dairy-free, allergy-free, gelatin-free, which by the way, a lot of people don't eat the gelatin like me, nut-free and everything else you can imagine. Also comes straight to your house. I don't got to go hunting for it. It's shipped to your door and my child eats it. Like he thinks it's candy. He's like, can I just have like one of those, please, mama? Can I have another one, please, mama? And with your first order, it comes with all these really cute stickers and they can decorate and they can make it kind of a personal experience. But we have worked out a special deal with Haya for their best-selling children's vitamin. You get 50% off your first order. To claim this deal, you must go to HayaHealth.com slash solve the case. This deal is not available on their regular website. So go to H-I-Y-A-H-E-A-L-T-H.com slash solve the case and get your kids the full body nourishment they need to grow into healthy adults. Let's talk about Alec on the stand because when I heard it was a possibility, my first reaction was like, no way. And I was equal parts terrified and fascinated. And then when he actually took the stand as an actor, I was just dissecting every, you know, his sort of, aw shucks, I'm a decent guy to his southern good old boy to being scatterbrained to being traumatized. Were you shocked or were you like, no, he's a narc. He's a narcissist. Of course he's going to take the stand. Yeah, you had no doubt. Well, a couple things pointed in that direction. The Russell Lafitte case, which is Alex's co-conspirator, he was a big banker. He took the stand and everybody was like, what an idiot. Why would he do that? And he did the exact same thing, which is like stand up there and be like, but you should believe me, huh? And everyone was like, no. But (laughs) it's just Mm -hmm. like a narcissist, good old boy quality. Like, I think no matter how much evidence is against me, I think I can talk these fine folks out of this. When you live your entire life having bamboozled everybody around you with that much power and entitlement— Shocking, right? Like you're gonna keep you're going. Gonna going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it was just it was it was kind of a very validating and beautiful thing for me to see <laughs> because he yeah. just all collapsed mm. on him in one big moment. <laughs> Something I found so interesting, and maybe I'm totally looking into this too much, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, but I feel like his lawyer said like Alec would like to take the stand. <laughs> Did he say something like that? And we'll call your next witness. Thank you, Your Honor. The defendant, Richard Alexander Murdoch, wishes to take the stand. Seemed like he was like, this is not me. Yep. (laughs) Right. And it just, as a lawyer, I mean, I I, I could not wrap. No, you don't put your defense. I mean, and I talked about this in our first first part of the uh, uh, coverage of this case in our first episode. I did not believe he was actually going to do it. He did it against his attorney's advice. Because it's the state's job to make the case. Why make it easier for them by putting your client on the stand? I mean, so the rule is you do not put your client on the stand. Like, that's the rule. There are maybe some certain exceptions. But in this case, given like what they're up against, given this guy's history, given all the stuff that's known about him publicly, given the, the family's reputation. I mean, I could just go on and on. There was every single reason not to put him on the stand except for the fact that he wanted to take the stand. And if your client wants to take the stand... You got to let him do it. Yeah, you can't do anything, right? Like, I mean, as a lawyer, the, you, just, you might be like, oh, I'm just going to, I'm withdrawing from the case type of thing. But, you know, a judge might be like, no, you can't. I mean, you, can, you also can't do that without the court's permission. There are moments when he was testifying, I'm like, defense counsel, or when he was being crossed, I examined, I was like, they're not even bothering to object <laughs> to so many things that were objectionable. That I, and I'm not even a trial attorney, but I'm like, oh, that is like the, the way the prosecutor would frame some of his questions. I mean, there were so many moments. And I think the defense counsel was like, yes, whatever. He's on his own, you know. And he just kept talking. Like, That's he just what it is. Kept, like, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the thing is, even, when you're, even if your client's going to take the stand, you have to coach them to keep your answers as limited as possible. You don't keep vomiting words, but that's all he did. He just wanted to play the courtroom. There were so many videos and and analysis of his body language because we think cognitively, we know he can lie. He did it so many times. But that 
body holds a different energy. What are both of your takes on body language? Mandy, you go first. I have not. I know that like body language experts on YouTube, like a million people sent me that link. I don't Mm -hmm. think I ever ended up watching it, but (laughs) maybe I did. I don't. (laughs) It's all a blur. But I thought the most, not necessarily body language, but I thought the most revealing thing that he really like told on himself was, and the way that you could tell that he was such a fraud was how he described both Maggie and Paul. Yeah. Like he said, Maggie, she was a girl. He couldn't like, and Maggie had trouble with her pregnancy, which was 20 years ago. So why are Mm -hmm. you bringing that up now? Like he couldn't fake human emotions of love and understanding another human being and empathy and all of those things and fear. He never could fake fear. Like, and that was a problem that he had this entire time. He never acted like, oh, I'm so scared there's murderers on the loose. Yeah. And they're coming after our family. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Which would have been what everybody else does. And his body language, I'm trying to think of some of the points. It was the the body language stuff was mostly like his dry mouth. He kept Yeah. That dry mouth that was driving anyone with misophonia crazy, the averted eyes, the nodding yes when he actually was saying no. And him like, rocking himself to tears. You, did you guys notice that? He'd start yeah. rocking and then he'd start crying. Yeah. And some people said he wasn't crying. He was just snotting. I, I, Wait, what did you say? Snotting? No, uh, you heard. You Is that heard. was? They said he wasn't crying. He was like snotting. It was, oh, so his eyes weren't watering, but he had, how do you even do that? That's quite a talent. Well, and he would like, he he would stick the. (laughs) Someone said he was like possibly snip. I don't know. But I I got sent a few of those videos. Sorry. Look, here's the thing. Here's the thing. The snot gate was a real thing. I can't, well, I got to go back and look at that. But I, I don't buy into body language stuff at all. Because I've seen too many wrong at all. I've seen too many wrongful convictions based on nothing but body language. Scott Peterson mm-hmm. went to prison because of body language shit. I mean, with Adnan, when Heyman Lee was killed, people were like, the nurse at school or French teacher, I remember somebody was like, I hugged him. He was very stiff. That body la- like to me, it's not. I mean, I think you when you have a pre, you already have a preconceived notion of how somebody of what you think of this person in relation to the issue, and so however they act you're going to interpret it the way that you already believe. And I'll be honest, look, and I've said this before, if I am driving and a police officer starts driving behind me, I'm going to start acting like I've got a body in the trunk. I will just act like that. My mouth my mouth goes dry when I've give, I give keynotes and I've given a million of them. So I don't believe that stuff. But what about the main one that everyone clung on to, which was when they said, did you kill them? He said, no. I just nodded my head. This is an audio (laughs) medium, Ellen. Thank you. (laughs) Welcome to podcasting. I mean, that to me was like the body holds on to, I don't know, Mm. visceral energy. He also said, and I would never hurt Maggie and Paul. He kept saying I would never hurt and not kill, which I don't know if that's a thing or not. (laughs) Well, he never said the word kill. He never said the word dead. He never said the word murder. What is that? I mean, those could be psychological blocks that he has. The thing is, is, I mean, but I can also see somebody who is truly traumatized because they lost people they love could maybe not also use those words. There are women, including, you know, who have been sexually assaulted but cannot use the R word. They can't say mm-hmm. rape. You know what I mean? Like, so I feel like, again, it's it could be telling or it might not be anything. That's why, like, it's hard for me to, I just feel like you, we don't need that to get this guy. <laughs> Let's look at all the actual evidence, right? Like, you don't need this stuff. The other thing people really focused on all along, which were like the 911 call, which he sounded. Mm-hmm. Oh, the, Ellen caught that, that thing with the beginning of that call. Yeah. Yeah. He like turns it on. It's like. Yeah, the minute they answer. There's a few mm-hmm. seconds. And then all of a sudden. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> You really can't tell how a person's going to react to a 911 call. And sometimes they're guilty and they sound, sometimes they sound like overly dramatic. Sometimes they sound, and then sometimes if they're too calm, people are like, they're too Mm -hmm. calm. And it's just really, really hard to tell. But Alex. That's true. But I do think it is telling that 
it, whatever he was, however he was acting, it changed in those, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like to me, it's, right. it's that transition that's telling, not necessarily how he's acting. If he was calm before yeah. and calm after the call was picked up, fine. If he was frantic before, frantic after, but it was just like that silence and then suddenly gets tr- that's the, we- that's what is telling to me. I think that's a part of his personality, which is like totally turn off on like he looks one way to the world and another way of how he really is. And I think that, I think that that's exactly what was going on in that 911 call. Like turn it on, be the grieving father. And it's just scary and bizarre to think about. Well, that was a great start of the conversation. There's more to come, but we are getting some insider information from Mandy Matney about how things go down in South Carolina, what the Murdochs are all up to, and she's got some more to reveal, though. We do. So if you are in the Patreon, click on over to part two, and if you're in the general feed, you will get the rest of this episode tomorrow. Until then, you can reach out to us on social media at Rabia and Ellen on Twitter, Instagram and TikTok and where can they find you Rabia? My Twitter is at Rabia Squared on Instagram I'm at Rabia Squared with the number 2 at the end Rabia Squared 2 and then I'm in our Facebook group aren't you proud of me? You are in the (laughs) Facebook group and I can be found Ellen Marsh on most all of the platforms and until then part 2 with Mandy Matley 